ahead and find Proverbs chapter 11 with me. Proverbs 11. We began last week by, uh, by dispelling the idea, the caricature, that the book of Proverbs is only concerned with down and dirty advice for everyday living. And Proverbs isn't so much concerned with big theological ideas about God and his nature and what he is like. Um, we saw how, j- just how untrue that was when we looked at the multitude of Proverbs which describe God as the creator of the cosmos and what it means to live like the cosmos has a creator. Proverbs about how God knows everything and what it means to live like God knows everything. And Proverbs about the sovereignty of God over all the earth and what it means to live like one of the subjects of the sovereign God. Last week we talked about God's big traits in Proverbs. Today I want to talk about God's more relational traits in Proverbs. Uh, if last time we talked about God as uh, God as Elohim, the, the generic word for deity, the big ideas about the idea of God, if last week we talked about God, the big God as Elohim, today we're going to talk about God as Yahweh, the personal covenant name that God revealed to Israel. We know about the power of God. The question today is, what about the person of God? That is, the personality of God, the likes and dislikes of God. How it is God relates to his creation. How God responds to the free will choices that his creatures make. I want to think today not just about God as an idea, but rather God as a person, as he's revealed to us in the Bible. I have five descriptions of Yahweh's relationship with humanity is given to us in Proverbs. Number one, Proverbs tells us that God is a lover of heartfelt righteousness. This is Proverbs 11 and verse 20. Proverbs 11 and verse 20. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. On the surface, it's a very simple and intuitive statement, but I want you to think about it a little harder. We are being told that the things we do has an effect on God's emotional state. And so we've got the crooked or the twisted heart. This refers to one who has perverted the image of God inside of them they should be bearing. One who has left God's straight paths. This, when this happens, it is an abomination to the Lord. But when our hearts are pure and blameless, receptive to our Creator, sticking on God's path, seeking God's path, how does God feel about that? It says he is delighted. A similar proverb. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. Proverbs 15 and verse 9. This is the point. God is not some distant deity who watches what we do the way we watch a baseball game we're sort of half interested in on TV and we're in and out of the room, we glance, okay, something happened. That's not God. He is totally invested in his creation. His heart rises and falls based on what we do. Does that change the way you think about serving this God? If he is this interested in us, emotionally invested in us? It's not about just rules and regulations. It's about pleasing our Father who watches us and loves us more than anything. This is Proverbs 15 and verse 8. Proverbs 15 and verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked, 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. 
we get here a picture of two kinds of worship, the worship of two kinds of people. First comes a wicked man, a man who is practically an atheist the other 23 hours of the day. He lives how he wants. He cares nothing about God or other people. But here he comes, still carrying out the authorized sacrifices to atone for his sins. Perhaps he thinks if he just checks the sacrifice box, God will approve him. I threw God his bone, got God off my back, and now I can live how I want. Now, surely, this never happens today. No one ever approaches worship this way. How does God feel about this man's sacrifice? It says it is an abomination to the Lord. We read some of these verses last week in Isaiah chapter 1, where in Isaiah, God says of such people who live reprobate lives, hands filled with blood, and yet come and bring those hands to worship him. And God basically says, your continual trampling of my courts is wearing me out. I hate it when you come to worship. But on the other hand, how does God feel when the upright man comes before him? A man who is striving to serve him every other day of his life, it says his prayer will be acceptable. God loves the worship and the prayers of such people. This is Proverbs 21 and verse 3. Proverbs 21 and verse 3. Proverbs 21 and verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. We've just been reminded in verse 2 that while our way may seem right in our own eyes, the Lord weighs the heart. We've just been reminded that God knows the heart. If that's really true, then in verse 3, he is not fooled when an unrighteous and unjust person tries to get on God's good side through sacrifice. He's not minimizing here outward religious forms. He's not minimizing sacrifice. God is the one who told Israel to sacrifice. But what he is saying in 21.3 is that sacrifice is not meaningful apart from righteous and just living every other day. Wasn't this King Saul's problem? That he thought he could do what he wanted and then sort of drywall over it with sacrifice? And so he kept the things uh, from, from the raid of the Amalekites kept things alive that he wasn't supposed to and the animals. And, and uh, the prophet Samuel comes and says, what is this that I hear? And he says, oh, don't worry, we're going to sacrifice him to God. I can disobey God if I promise to use the spoils of that disobedience and sacrifice to God. God loves a sacrifice. What's the problem here? The prophets never stop talking about the relationship between right living and outward worship. Worship not as a thing separate from it, but as a whole tapestry of discipleship, not a substitute for discipleship. This is one of Jesus' main gripes with the scribes and Pharisees, insisting, yes, on all the outward forms of worship, but, bit, but meanwhile being hypocritical and uncaring and cruel in every other way. I'll, I'll read you what one, what one author has said about this idea. He said, what this proverb does warn us of is thinking we can disconnect true repentance and heart obedience from religious service. The moment our heart relationship with God is soiled by sin and is left unresolved, all religious and spiritual service and sacrifice becomes worthless before God. In fact, it becomes worse than worthless. It becomes detestable in God's sight. The same act of sacrifice can either be a pleasing aroma to God or an abomination. And it is the reality of repentance and obedience that makes the difference. This is Proverbs 28 and verse 9. One more proverb on this point. Proverbs 28 and verse 9. Proverbs 28 and verse 9. 
If one turns away, 28.9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is is an abomination. Prayer is about talking to God. God's word, God's law, is about listening to God. Prayer is about talking, and God's word is about listening to God. So what is this man trying to do in 28.9? Well, he wants God to hear him in his prayer, but he doesn't want to hear God in his word. And this proverb says, if you don't want to listen to God, don't expect God to listen to you. That God is not our magic genie at our beck and call. Prayer is not just about getting God to do for us. It is about being in relationship with God, where he speaks to us through his word, and we speak to him through prayer. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Proverbs is always reminding us that God desperately wants to be in relationship with us. And relationships go both ways. Do you know someone, have you ever had a relationship with someone where the only time they ever called you or talked to you was when they wanted something from you? You ever had a relationship like that? That's what we try to do with God sometimes. God says, listen, listen to me. Take me seriously. Get to know me and what it is I really want. Be righteous. Love justice. I love that. Don't try to use me. Don't try to put me in your debt through wicked sacrifices or magic genie prayers. Take me seriously. That's what I love. When someone wants to know what I love and wants to do what I love, I love being in relationship with people like that. The other side of the coin is what God hates. God is, in Proverbs, a hater of wickedness. This is Proverbs 6 and verse 16. Proverbs 6 and verse 16. Proverbs 6 and verse 16. 6.16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here's the list. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breeds out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Is God really capable of hating something? It doesn't really, maybe it doesn't sound right to our ear. But it is totally intuitive that God would hate things. Because if God is completely holy and completely good, would he not abhor that which is contrary to his holiness and goodness? Well, here are some things we are told God has a resolute hatred of. Haughty eyes, literally high eyes in verse 17. Which describes someone who sins willfully and defiantly and proudly. It's one thing to sin and be ashamed of your sin. It's a whole other thing to sin defiantly, high-handedly. God says, I especially hate that, the haughty eyes, the lying tongue. You may be able to fool or deceive people with flattery or deception or lies, but you'll never fool God. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 12, verse 22. Into verse 17, hands that shed innocent blood. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But God takes up the cause of the helpless and the innocent. He is described by the prophets as the father to the fatherless and the husband to the widow. Cares for those who cannot care for themselves. And so when someone prays upon those helpless people, God has said he loves and cares for. When someone prays upon them, God hates that sin in particular. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans, a heart consumed with evil. 
Feet that make haste to run to evil. When we expend our efforts, when we expend our energy toward evil. Verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. Some people lie as effortlessly as they breathe and as often, and God hates that. And finally, verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. God hates when people create needless conflict among his people. The point is, God feels something real when he sees wickedness in all its varieties. This is Proverbs 11 and verse 1. Proverbs 11 and verse 1. Proverbs 11 and verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. In the ancient world, before they had modern scales, um, the way in which you would weigh things would have a balance. You'd have a balance. And on one side of the balance, you would put, say, a stone that had a known weight. And then on the other side of the balance, you would put the product, the amount of grain you were going to buy, the sack of grain, and when it balanced out, you knew it was the weight of that thing, that, that, of that other known thing. But of course, if you wanted a little extra, if you wanted to, say, cheat the person you were selling the grain to, what you might do is mislabel the stone. And so that you might charge someone for a pound of grain when really the stone only had 15 ounces or 14 ounces, and you could cheat them a little bit. Right? It's when the two-by-four has a little, little cutoff on the end. And so every, every few hundred, they make up, you know, they, have a, they save a whole two-by-four. It's when the butcher puts his thumb on the scale. It's when we make accounting errors that always seem to be in our own favor. Another proverb says much the same thing. Unequal weights, unequal measures, both alike, an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 20 and verse 10. I think what this reminds us of is that we don't have a part of our life that's not subject to God's law. That God cares deeply about your integrity, not just at church and not just in your family. He cares deeply about your integrity on the job and in your business dealings and in your financial dealings and transactions. He hates dishonesty and deception wherever it happens. And he loves integrity and fairness wherever it happens. This is Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Proverbs 16 and verse 5. I promise as we go, each point uh, gets a little bit shorter. Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he, the arrogant one, will not go unpunished. It was C.S. Lewis who said, Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is the beginning of Proverbs tells us, if the fear of the Lord is where it all begins, deep reverence and respect for God, then pride and arrogance will keep us from getting past that very first gate to wisdom. If we don't have enough humility to acknowledge one is greater than us, one is wiser than us, one knows more about the world and how to get along in it more than us, if you can't even get past that, if you can't even get over yourself, You will never get anywhere near the God who abhors pride. This is Proverbs 17 and verse 15. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. 17.15 He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We are to imagine here a judge who justifies every guilty person, every wicked person, and throws every righteous and innocent person into prison. 
Imagine someone who calls evil good and calls what is good evil. Now, of course, we're thinking here of, of, uh, of political power. God delegates authority to civil government to render justice. This is what Romans 13 teaches us. But what passages like these remind us is, yes, he delegates that, but the people to whom he delegates authority are always answerable to him about how they use that authority. And they will be accountable to him. God has strong opinions when justice is perverted. One more proverb on this, on this point. This is 21-27. 21-27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination How much more when he brings it with evil intent? That is, when he brings the sacrifice with evil intent. So it's a proverb about wicked worship, we might say. The first line envisions a man of evil character who goes to offer sacrifices. It's worship which is not genuine or heartfelt or meaningful, growing out of a whole life relationship with God. How does God view the sacrifice of the the first line? It's an abomination to him. Well, the second line says, well, if God hates that sacrifice, let's say a sacrifice which is offered, hopefully, in in, in hope of establishing a relationship which grows out of a life which is not serving God in any other way. If God hates that sacrifice, how much more, line two says, will he hate that sacrifice when the sacrifice itself is offered with evil intent? Perhaps this is a person who is worshiping in their mind with the complete motivation of, of manipulating God. Maybe this is worship which is meant to to boost his community status so that he can use that community status to make more money in business. Maybe he's a predator who hopes to ingratiate himself to other worshipers to gain their trust so that he can swindle them later. God in particular says, I abominate their sacrifice. You can't leave Proverbs without being impressed by God's outrage. His outrage towards sin, evil, and justice. And what I want to say about this aspect of God's, of God's character is that we should be grateful to learn these things about God. Because we would not want to serve a God who looked on, looked on all the evil of the world passively. That God does not watch all the evil happen in our world. The corruption, the injustice, the violence, the abuse, the neglect. God does not watch all of that and just shrug his shoulders. And a God who did that toward evil would not be a God worth worshiping. He cares deeply about the evil that happens in his creation. And I remind you, he himself was a victim of it on the cross. Which brings us to number three. God is described in Proverbs as protector of the helpless. This is 22 and verse 22. Proverbs 22 and verse 22. 22-22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. So verse 22 is about taking advantage of those who have few resources because they're poor. The the poor man may not have a lot to rob, but if you do rob him, there is the fact that he might not be able to hire a lawyer. He can't afford a lawyer. And the police may not care about him. And he may be half-starved and not able to put up much of a fight if you want to try to take advantage of him. But what does verse 23 say about those who would take advantage of those who are easy prey? Verse 23 says, God will be both lawyer on behalf of that poor man as well as judge who dispenses justice on the predator. 
And the judgment that the predator receives is poetic, that he will be robbed. The one who robbed life from him will himself be robbed by God. This is 23 and verse 10. 23 and verse 10. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. To the Israelite, the land was a sacred gift. It was promised to your forefather Abraham. It was received in the time of Joshua. And your family, your tribe and your family may well have been named in the book of Joshua. And the allotment of land that you were entitled to is described in the Bible itself. Well, it was a fact of life that sometimes in Israel's history, some ambitious person would come along and try to increase their land holdings at the expense of their brethren. And so who would be the easiest to take advantage of? If you wanted to expand your holdings, who would you go and and solicit? Well, here it's the fatherless who you're taking advantage of. Imagine someone who has been orphaned, someone who is desperate, who doesn't have the means to provide for themselves. All they might have to their name is this land, but land which they're not even wealthy enough to work and and, uh, invest in. And so the evil man, we might imagine, sidles up. And he pays them pennies on the dollar for that land because of their desperation. Verse 11 pictures God as their legal representation, as their redeemer. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. Similar idea. Next time you read through the books of, say, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, as I know you're constantly doing, next time you read the prophets, take note of how often God is especially concerned for the well-being of the helpless. God did not want Israel to become a place where the innocent, where the poor, where the widowed, where the orphaned were preyed upon or taken advantage of. He always wanted Israel to be a place where those sorts of people were cared for. Where in those sorts of people we saw opportunities to help and to be a blessing and not an opportunity to enrich ourselves at their expense. Number four, God in Proverbs is described as the deliverer of the righteous. This is Proverbs 11 and verse 8. Proverbs 11 and verse 8. <clears throat> 11, 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. The righteous is delivered from trouble, and the wicked walks into it instead. It's the picture of a righteous man being the object of some evil man's scheme. And God says, I deliver the righteous man from trouble and I cause the wicked man to fall into his own trap. That evil ultimately backfires on, on, on the perpetrator of it. Now, the, the reversal being described may or may, not, may or may not happen in this life, but it certainly will happen in the next. All the schemes of evil men ultimately turn out like the schemes of Haman, who built gallows to hang Mordecai on and in, ended up being hung on them himself. This is Proverbs 14 and verse 26. Proverbs 14 and verse 26. 1426, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord, verse 27, is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. We're back again at the fear of the Lord being foundational to everything else in the book. This proverb looks ahead to how our fear of the Lord can affect even the next generation. That there is always confidence and refuge and life and salvation when the fear of of the Lord is central to our lives. The God we fear 
vigorously protects those who are his. This is Proverbs 20 and verse 22. Proverbs 20 and verse 22. 20 and verse 22. Do not say... I will repay evil. Instead, wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. So why don't people who fear God say, I, I will repay evil in the first half of the proverb? Because in the second half, we believe in a God who will save and deliver and bring, bring just vengeance. If you don't believe in a God like that, a God who will judge, you have no basis on which to restrain yourself from vengeance. In that case, if you want justice in this world, you're going to have to go out and get it yourself. But those who trust God don't have to take matters into their own hands because we know God delivers his children. That dovetails into our fifth and final point. Proverbs ultimately pictures God as the judge of all mankind. This is Proverbs 10 and verse 27. Proverbs 10 and verse 27. Ten twenty-seven. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. We've established that God has feelings about righteousness and wickedness. But we were, what we're reminded of in, 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 in Proverbs like these is that it doesn't just feel about these things. He promises to act based on those feelings. And the action where he meets out this justice, where he repays wickedness and righteousness with what they deserve, this action is called judgment. And this passage is full of judgment statements. Verse 27, fear, the fear of God prolongs, the, prolongs life while the wicked's lives are cut short. It's a promise of judgment. Verse 28, the righteous will have joy and the wicked will perish. Verse 29, God is a stronghold to the blameless and he is destruction to the evildoers. The outcomes of judgment. Verse 30, righteous will be established in the land while the wicked will have no part in it. The ultimate fate, fate of judgment. Some of that may happen here and now, but ultimately it will be absolute and it will be complete. This is Proverbs 11 and verse 31. Proverbs 11 and verse 31. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? I, I, I find this proverb a little bit inscrutable until we open up the New Testament where actually the Apostle Peter is quoting it. First Peter 4 and verse 18, Peter quotes this proverb and he does it to tell suffering Christians basically this. If we, God's people have to undergo so much hardship and difficulty now on this side of eternity in order to be refined and prepared for God's kingdom, if we have to undergo hardship to prepare us for that, for that final day, then what will happen to the wicked in the end who don't have that preparation? If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, how much more hard is it going to be for the wicked when that final day comes? In other words, yes, it's hard for the righteous now, but how much harder will it be ultimately for the wicked? This is Proverbs 24 and verse 12. Proverbs 24 and verse 12. You've done very well keeping up with me. This will be the final proverb we look in. Proverbs 24 and verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this, 
Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? This seems to be looking forward to a time of judgment. God says to us, imagine God saying to us, why did you do this? Or why didn't you do this? To which we answer the beginning of the proverb, I don't know. I don't know why we did that. Behold, we did not know this. That excuse might allow us to wiggle out of a lot of consequences with with people, plead ignorance. But when we're standing before God, the God who weighs hearts, how well does that work? He sees through every excuse and he renders justice. Will he not repay man according to his work? Certainly he will. God loves righteousness and God hates wickedness. And those feelings are ultimately reflected in judgment. Where he weighs each heart and he discerns their content and no excuse will fly. In judgment, all injustice is fixed. All wrongs are righted. All secrets come to light. The proud are humiliated. The poor in spirit are exalted. Do you see how Proverbs gives us insight into God as a person, as in what God actually cares about, what makes God tick? He is a lover of righteousness and hater of wickedness. Those things actually rouse his emotions. And then he promises to do something based on those feelings. To those who are victimized, he promises protection. To those who are victimizing, he promises vengeance. To those trying to do right, he promises vindication. And to all mankind, he promises to come again in judgment. Let me say one more thing about God's judgment. When we talk of God's judgment, it usually sounds very scary, very ominous to us. But one thing I want to emphasize to you is is that among God's people, God's judgment has always been good news. Because when God's judgment arrives, it means ultimately, yes, the destruction of the wicked, But it also means a fixing of all that's broken. It means a righting of everything that's wrong. It means a vindication of all those who through pain and difficulty have been striving for God. This is Psalm 98, which describes God's judgment this way. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Why are the hills and the rivers singing? For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and people's with equity. Creation, creation is excited about the day of judgment. It's the day when everything gets set the way it should be. I'll read you what one man has said about this idea of judgment, how to think of it. He said, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world of rebellion, a world of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. And perhaps a good sign of how ready you are for that day is whether the idea of that day of judgment scares you or excites you. That is often a sign of how well prepared you are for it. Are you excited? Are you ready for that day to come as we sometimes say? Perhaps there's someone here this morning that realizes you are not prepared to stand before God the judge. Perhaps there's someone here that needs to make their life right. Someone needs to come before these people to put on Christ in baptism, to seek the prayers of these good people. Whatever your need, come forward now as we stand and sing.